The following is a review of some claims of Jimmy DeYoung on Brandon House's television program where they were giving evidence for the pre-tribulational rapture. I reserve the right to use these clips under fair use as this is for the purpose of critique. So how this will work will be that I will play a clip and then I and Alan Kirshner will discuss each clip. Alan has a master's in biblical languages. He's working on a PhD currently in Greek linguistics. He runs Eschatos Ministries as well as Jesus Bible Institute, and he's the author of the book Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord. The interview is from one of my podcasts, Bible Prophecy Talk, and you can subscribe to it on iTunes or visit the website BibleProphecyTalk.com. I will also direct your attention to the description section of this video where you will find many relevant links to the information that will be discussed in the clips. So here's the first clip, and then I will turn it over to Alan. But you said something very interesting. You said the wrath of man before the wrath of God. Listen, the wrath of God is from the outset. In chapter 4, go back with us. And see, the reason I was saying that is because that's what the pre-wrath people teach. Yeah. That there's the wrath of man, the Antichrist, and then later there's the wrath of God. And the pre-wrath people say we go through the wrath of man, Antichrist wrath, but then we're raptured out and we are spared the wrath of God, the back half, that last two years or so of let's, the let's, let's, And you're saying that's wrong. I'm saying it's wrong, and let's look at it right here. In chapter 4, verse 1, the rapture takes place. In chapter 4, verse 2, here's what it says. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now we're going to clear up a couple of things here. Who's seated on the throne? That's chapter 4, verse 2. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. This is a sealed book. I love to refer to it as the title deed to the earth. But notice here, he has the sealed book in his hand, the one who's seated on the throne. Somebody said, who's going to open the sealed book? One of the elders said, uh, 24 elders said, what about Jesus? He was pure. He was perfect. He was without sin. Let him do it. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah. Look at verse 7. That's just described Jesus. And it says, And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. God gives it to Jesus. And when he comes in the clouds at the second coming of Christ. So it's a key component in understanding Bible prophecy. But again, Jesus Christ takes the sealed book, the title deed to the earth. He's going to bring it under his objection. Go chapter 6 and verse 1 beginning of these judgments, okay? And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Mm-hmm. That's Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's not the wrath of man. That's not the wrath of Antichrist. In fact, the first judgment he brings on the scene is the Antichrist. It's from God who allows the Antichrist, this powerful satanic personality, to bring the judgments on the earth. So to say that there's the wrath of man and there's wrath of God, it's all the wrath of God because the first seal, which is part of the wrath of God, that first part of that wrath is the Antichrist. Who comes on the scene to be the agent that God is going to allow to judge yes. the world. That's a part so of So you can't plan. be dividing the wrath of man versus the wrath of God because it's all the wrath of yeah. God. God's orchestrated all of it. All right, Alan, if you could respond to Mr. DeYoung's argument uh, on this point. Yeah, Jimmy DeYoung, he, he doesn't make an argument, actually. He doesn't even get into the specifics uh, of, the, of the seals. And uh, the pre-wrath position believes that the first six seals are not God's wrath. It is once the seventh seal is opened... Uh, so, so you have seven seals on the scroll, uh, and all seven seals uh, have to be broken before the scroll is opened, which is the, the trumpet 
judgments and the bowl of judgments. This is God's wrath, the day of the Lord's wrath. Uh, but the seven seals, they, they represent, these are conditions uh, that need to be fulfilled for uh, the day of the Lord's wrath to reclaim uh, this world for his own. If someone reads the, the seals, uh, they'll see that these are just natural events. Uh, the, the, you know, false Christ or antichrist. I, I believe that the antichrist is, uh, represents in the first seal, but that's, uh, I'm not going to get into that because actually Jimmy DeYoung and, um, agrees that this represents the, uh, the first seal represents the antichrist. But, uh, look at the, se- the second seal, wars, famine, and then there's, uh, there's martyrdom in the, in, in fourth, fifth seal, and then, uh, then you have celestial disturbances. These are, these are natural events. Okay. And when you read these events and you contrast with the narrative of the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, you see that there's a stark contrast. The trumpet bowl judgments, these are uh, uh, supernatural events, whereas the seals are more na- uh, natural events. Uh, let me read uh, uh, the fifth seal account. It says in Revelation 6, 9, Now when the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar... The souls of those who had been violently killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony they had given. Notice here it says they were killed because of the word of God. It doesn't say what well, because God poured his wrath upon him. No, it, it says because of the word of God, because of their testimony. And then it says the martyrs, they, they cried out with a loud voice to God. How long, sovereign master, holy and true, before you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood. So the martyrs here, they recognize that this is not an expression of God's wrath. In fact, they're saying that it hasn't happened yet. They're saying, they're asking God, God, when are you going to avenge? Uh, and, and the answer to them is very telling. There's in, in verse 11, it says, uh, this is the divine response, by the way. Each of them was given a long white robe, i.e., you know, symbolizing the resurrection. Uh, They're not wearing it yet. They're giving it to almost like a a down payment or a a hope. And they were told to rest for a little while until the full number was reached of both their fellow servants and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. So basically, in verse 11, God is saying, hey, I, I will avenge my blood. I will pour out my wrath in a little while. Just hold on there. And here's... You know, here's a down payment, if you will, or the uh, a symbol, the white uh, white robe. In the first six seals, each one is opened up without interruption, right? The first seal is opened, the second seal, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, they're all opened up without interruption. But before the seventh seal is opened, which will open up the scroll, there's in Revelation 7, there's two groups of people being protected. There's 144,000 Jews who are protected on earth. Uh, and why are they protected? Well, we're told because uh, so that God's wrath does not da- uh, hurt them. And then there's this great multitude, which is none other than the church who has been raptured, this great multitude who has just appeared in heaven. And, you know, John is asking, well, you know, who is, who, who is this group? You know, and they have resurrected bodies, by the way. And, and he's told that they have come out of the great tribulation which is very interesting because that lines up with Matthew 24, where the gathering of the elect happens out of the Great Tribulation. This is none other, other than the raptured people of God. And it's, and it's fitting that it happens right here because it's just before the seventh seal is open. 
and if you read Revelation 8, you will see the prelude to the day of the Lord's wrath. Contra to Jimmy Young, who says, well, the seven seals are, or the first six seals are God's wrath. Uh, no, it's not. There's no evidence for that. He, like I said, he doesn't actually make an argument for the seals being God's wrath. Uh, well, I should qualify that. He he tries to. He he says, he says, well, it's Jesus who is you know breaking the seals. You know, this is this is Jesus doing it. Uh, and but that's not an argument because my response is, yeah, uh, it's it's uh, indication that God is in control. Jesus is in control. The uh, it's God's sovereignty. It's sort of like Job. Uh, remember, Job, God gave, uh, you know, Satan uh, authorization, permission uh, to um, to wreak havoc. Uh, well, I, I'm sure Jimmy DeYoung would say, well, God was still sovereign at that point, you know, and yet that wasn't a wrath from uh, from God. Yeah, a final point I want to make is that, uh, again, the, the pre-wrath position rightly sees the biblical distinction between the Antichrist Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord's Wrath. And somehow, I, I just, you know, it's in their mind, the pre-tribulation mind, that, that the Antichrist, uh, his, his rule, his campaign, it, or, you know, his object of wrath is against uh, the, the the world. And and it's, again, I, I, it, that's just not the case. Um uh, the function of Antichrist, and I believe that uh, the first seal does symbolize uh, the Antichrist slash false Christ, but uh, Revelation 13, verse 3 through 4, explicitly states the purpose of the Antichrist. It says that one of the beast's heads appeared to have been killed, i.e. the Antichrist, but the lethal wound had been healed, and the whole world followed the beast in amazement. Okay, so the world is going to follow the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he had given ruling authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast too, saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to make war against them? So the world is going to love the Antichrist. And then in verse 5, it says, the beast was given a mouth, speaking proud words and blasphemies, and he was permitted to, there it is, he was permitted to exercise ruling authority for 42 months, so the beast opened his mouth to blaspheme against God, to blaspheme both his name and his dwelling place, uh, that is, those who dwell in heaven. The beast was permitted to go to war against the saints and conquer them. Now, he was, yeah, and then it says he was given ruling authority over every tribe, people, language, nation. So the Antichrist's great relation, the objects of wrath are against God's people, Okay. In contrast, the day of the Lord's wrath is going to be against, not God's people, but against the ungodly. Uh, so when Jimmy DeYoung, Brandon House, they say, well, you know, there's no distinction between God's wrath and Antichrist's wrath. It's like, no, there is. There's a sharp distinction. Uh, and so, in fact, when the Lord comes back, uh, he will um, deliver God's people who have been suffering under the the hand of Antichrist, and then he will pour out his wrath upon the ungodly. You know, Alan, it would be so great to hear a, a good debate about these types of issues, um, but we don't get that kind of thing here. In fact, as you mentioned, he didn't even deal with the whole point. He just sort of honed in on a semantic issue, basically. You know, just a, a word argument, not actually dealing with the point that the, that right. it can be demonstrated that the wrath of God does not occur until, you know, as you mentioned, the sixth uh, seal, when it says, you know, behold, the wrath of God has come. And, of course, that in context makes sense with then 
you can see the wrath clearly demonstrated in word and deed and through the trumpets and bolts and all these different arguments. And he just says, no, no, no. It's And, you know, of course, in Revelation 12, it does say, you know, he knows his time is short, uh, so his wrath is very greater. So there is a reason to say the Antichrist wrath, but... You know, we don't need to call it the Antichrist wrath. Yeah. We just call it the Antichrist persecution of the uh, of the of the saints is right. distinct from God's wrath, and we're right back to the same point place of now right. deal with the fact that this is an explicit teaching of Scripture and that the seals are simply not God's wrath. The word church is used nineteen times in those first three chapters of Revelation. It's used one time in chapter twenty-two, and it's not referring about the church in the stage we are today, but the church in eternity future. And those 16 chapters of detailed information about this terrible time of judgment, the tribulation period, the word church is not used one time. Mm. So therefore, the first approach I would say, look, here's God's plan for the future. Uh, when you have in chapter 1, verse 18, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he said, I'm here, was alive and dead. I now stand before you alive. And then the next verse, he says, in verse 19 in chapter 1, now here's what's going to happen in the future. And he lays it out. He lays it out distinctly for us. And he only has the church prior to the tribulation period, prior to the rapture of the church. They're not there for 16 chapters of detail and information and only mentioned in eternity future in chapter 22. This gives us strong evidence that the church is going to have to leave before the tribulation, making us then pre-trib. Okay, Alan, what would you say about this uh, strong evidence that Jimmy DeYoung uh, presents? I mean, th this is kind of absurd reasoning. Uh, I mean, the, the, the word church is it's absent from the books of Mark, Luke, John, 2 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, Jude. Well, I guess those books don't apply to Christians, right? I mean, that's just, this is absurd. You find this frequently in a, a lot of pop pre-tribulational material you but you you will not find this argumentation trust me in in the more scholarly literature the pre-trib literature and again i mentioned that this this fallacy and we everyone needs to be aware of this what's going on here this this type of fallacy is called the word concept fallacy and basically what it says is it's an assumption that's just merely studying a word or a phrase is the same as having studied the entire concept Simply open up a concordance, finger down the page, looking for usages for the word church, while excluding all other terms that describe the church. Uh, what I'm going to do is I, I want to give some reasons, uh, some more reasons why this is really bad. First of all, it's mistaken to think a New Testament writer is required to mention the term church throughout his writings to establish the application to the church. I mean... For example, Paul only mentioned the term church once in the first chapter of his epistle to the Galatians. I mean, do, does not, uh, you know, Galatians chapters 2 through 6 apply to the church? Well, of course they do. Will the church not, to part will it not participate in rejoicing in heaven and the marriage supper of the Lamb? Of course they would say yes. But the bride of Christ is found in Revelation 19.7. The word church is never mentioned there. Is the bride then not the church? You see the, the deep inconsistency here? By the way, there's another expression used 59 times in the New Testament, saints. It's referred to a true believer in Christ, a member of this true church. I mean, the word church 
is one term to describe the people of God. They believe that the saints mentioned in Revelation 13, 7. There's, there's a reference, and it's, it's uh, these saints who are being persecuted by the Antichrist. They believe this is not part of the church. They believe these are, quote-unquote, tribulation saints. And yet, they fail to see that these saints who are described as the bride of Christ in Revelation 19, 8, are the church. In other words, pre-tribulationists agree that the bride of Christ is the church. <laughs> And, and yet the depiction is in Revelation 19. So again, it's inconsistent for them to say, well, the church isn't mentioned in, you know, Revelation uh, chapters 4 to 21. But then later on, they'll talk about, yeah, actually, well, the bride of Christ is the church too, and, and so on. So it's a very common argument. It's a bad argument. And we would really uh, should never use it. We should never use it for other doctrines like the deity of Christ and other things. Well, that's a good point there. We would never use this hermeneutic for even uh, to, to determine doctrine on even a, a, a insignificant point of doctrine. It is so uh, it is such a bad hermeneutic. For example, I mean, the the idea, of course, is that there, as you mentioned, the saints uh, obviously represents the church in it's used at least what four or five times. Revelation thirteen seven, Revelation ten, Revelation fourteen twelve, eighteen twenty, and twenty four. Um, like you said, the wife, the bride of Christ in, in Revelation 19.7 is clearly the church. The, the term doulos not just, doesn't just appear as the, as the term that is used uh, at the beginning of Revelation as, as addressed to the doulos, but also um, in Revelation 11.18 and 19.2 and 5. This is impossible to not be the church. A few ways to demonstrate the sort of double standard there is that they are quite willing to accept that the church is is visible in those chapters uh, by representation. For example, as we're going to deal with in Revelation 4.1, they believe that John is a type of the church in Revelation 4.1, yet John is, of course, on earth and, and all kinds of different places during the uh, during that period. Um, it, mm -hmm. it, so it would be, even by their own logic, terribly inconsistent. They, they believe, although I think is, is wrong, that the, that the church is represented by the 24 elders, um, which, again, is in that period. So they, they believe that the church is in there, but they the explicit mentioning of the church, examples of, like, for example, the saints, which, you know, are being persecuted, Revelation 13, 7, and it was given unto him, that is the beast, to make war with the saints, or um, the patience and faith of the saints. In Revelation 19 and 20, these are, if the idea was consistent, that the church wasn't there, you know, in those chapters, you would expect to see the church in Revelation uh, 19 and 20, where the church is supposed to be according to their view. They give you the impression that the church is, you know, gone for a while, and then it shows up again, um, and that would mm -hmm. be a more consistent idea. But it's not there again. That term does not appear in Revelation 20 and the millennium and eternity future, and in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. All these places that the church is supposed to be, the term does not appear. I mean, there's at least nine different references to the church in Revelation 4 through 19. Okay, let's move on to one that is very closely related to this argument, and that is Revelation 4.1. Chapter 4, this is depicting the rapture of the church. Look what it says here, verse 1, chapter 4, Revelation. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were. Now that phrase, Brandon, as it were, used 52 times in Revelation, is basically introducing an apocalyptic passage. So notice he says, I heard, as it were, a trumpet talking with me. Now, wait a minute. I've never heard a trumpet talk. I played 
trumpet since I was 13. I got a box Stradivarius handmade trumpet. Never talked to me. It must be my personality. <laughs> but uh, it's never talked to me. This is apocalyptic. Remember those other passages I gave you early on in our conversation? First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Jesus shouts, Archangel shouts, trump of God sounds. We're caught up. First Corinthians 15, 51 to 53 in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. So you bring that information to the table. And we see it's talking about here a trumpet that will be shouting. And what is he going to shout? It says right here, come up hither. And John is going to be translated in chapter 4, verse 1, from the earth to chapter 4, verse 2, into the third heaven. That is what happens at the rapture of the church. But now notice the last phrase in verse 1. And I will show thee things which must be hereafter, after the rapture of the church. And as we've already explained from chapter 4, verse 2, all the way to the rest of the end of the book of Revelation, it's laid out what's going to happen in the future. Those next 16 chapters, detailed information about the tribulation period, the church is not in there. All right, Alan, what would you say to Mr. DeYoung's argument of Revelation 4.1? In this show, when I was listening to uh, Brandon House and Jimmy DeYoung, no less than five times, they were stressing, you know, the pre-trib view. We're the position that takes Scripture literally. We can't allegorize. We can't spiritualize. we got to take Scripture in its natural, normal, use, customary usage. Well, you know, saying it is one thing, but actually putting it into practice is another. They're just simply inconsistent. Uh, let's read Revelation 4.1. It says, After these things I looked, and there was a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here so that I can show you what must happen uh, after these things. This is John being translated to heaven in the Spirit. This isn't the church. If you're going to make this a church, then we might as well just throw out all hermeneutical principles and standards, as far as I'm concerned, and we might as well just go home. John hears a trumpet. A trumpet, uh, well, one of the functions of a trumpet is to summon uh, someone to somewhere. Well, and and what is the context here? Notice notice that DeYoung is uh, importing, he talked about trying to uh, associate the trumpet here with Paul's mention of the trumpet in uh, in First Thessalonians, so he's importing one context and forcing it into the other here, and but you can't do that. You have again, you gotta let the text speak for itself. And the trumpet here is, is simply functioning to summon John, not the church, but John. Well, it's kind of it's ironic, kind of, or it's sadly ironic, but De Young criticizes post-tribulationists for allegorizing the two witnesses as symbolizing the church and the rapture, but that's what he does, and that's what De Young does right here in Revelation 4.1. So again, that's the, it's, it's uh, you know, another inconsistent uh, argument. So, uh, and of course, as the pre-wrath position, I believe, no, we don't have to start allegorizing or forcing, uh, you know, where's the rapture in Revelation? Uh, well, see that actually uh, reading Revelation uh, 7, there's a great multitude who just just appeared uh, from the earth. They're in heaven and before the throne of God, and they have newly resurrected bodies, and uh, it's just very natural to see that as the rapture happening before the sixth and seventh trumpet, or sixth and seventh seal, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. 
Yeah, I know it's 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 an explicit teaching there in Revelation six. I mean, it, everything fits perfectly, but it's it's like so many arguments. It simply cannot be um, because that would mean that the church has to go through a persecution before it is raptured out, uh, and then the the wrath of God begins upon the wicked. But you know, another argument is this: this is such an inconsistent hermeneutic because. Um, if John is a symbol of, a, of the church, then he is not a consistent symbol. For example, you know, it says here that, that he's taken up in the spirit. Um, what does it say there in Revelation? And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. But in Revelation um, 17, mm-hmm. he is again, this this happens again. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I right. saw the woman sitting on a scarlet beast. So now he's in the wilderness on earth. He sees his beast, you know, come from the sea back in Revelation 13, another situation. He is taken in the spirit to different right. places. Right. And, and so it's exactly the same thing. So if this is a consistent thing, then now the church is on the earth to yep. see Mystery Babylon, you know, or this and all this other stuff. And, he, and now the church is, is on the earth to see the beast come out of the sea. So John right. is taken a lot of different places in the spirit. And, and there is no, uh, from an from just simple exegesis would suggest that this is similar to other times uh, in prophetic uh, literature where, where uh, prophets are taken uh, not just to the throne of God. We could see examples of that, for example, with Ezekiel um, or, or even Paul taken to the throne of God, quote, in the spirit, you know, the mm-hmm. same, you know, whether in the body or in the spirit, I know not this whole same, same thing. It's a consistent theme in scripture that we cannot uh, see uh, as a pre-tribulationalist. You cannot view that as is what it obviously right. is, a very consistent thing that happens when prophets are taken to the throne of God or some other place, for example, with Daniel or Ezekiel taken to a river to see a vision or something yeah. like that. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. And uh, just just to add two other quick points is in in Revelation four one they'll, they'll say, well, John symbolizes the ra- uh, the church as the rapture, but first of all, it says that he's he's called up in the spirit. Well, the church when when we're when the church is raptured, they're gonna have they're gonna have new bodies. They're not gonna be just merely in the spirit before the throne of God. They're gonna have new bodies. And what's interesting is Revelation four one gives the purpose why John is called up. He says. He's called up here, come up here so that I can show you what must happen after these things. That's not what's going to happen when the church is called up. There's a different function. When the church is called up, our, our, the purpose is not so we can see what's going to happen after these things. No, it's to it's a blessed hope. It's to, to be with our Lord. It's to fellowship with him perfectly. It's to uh, another purpose of the rapture is to escape the ensuing wrath of God. But that's not what's being said here. It's, it's specifically, specifically saying why John is being called up. So uh, just, just again, what what really, just you know, again, bad argumentation on on Jimmy DeYoung's part. Okay, let's move on to another clip. This is from Jimmy DeYoung on John chapter fourteen. Uh, But the rapture is an absolute. Jesus Christ first referred to it in the upper room that night before he was crucified the next day. He said to his disciples, they were there, they were having anxiety attacks. They realized that something was coming down. They didn't like what they think was going to happen. But he said to them, and he tried to calm them, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, now listen to this, I shall come and receive you unto myself. That's not the second coming. We come with Christ down to the earth. 
Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31. A book of Revelation chapter 19, verses 16 and verse 14. We come back to the earth. We step back on the Mount of Olives with him. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. Those are all absolutes in the scriptures. So Jesus was not referring to the second coming, but he said, I will receive you unto myself. That means we are going to leave this earth and be translated into the heavenlies to be with him in his father's house. Okay, Alan, what would you say about that clip? Yeah, uh, Jimmy DeYoung is just simply mistaken. Uh, in John 14, and by the way, pre-Rathers agree with pre-tribulationists that in John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus is speaking of the rapture when he comes and receives his people unto himself. He'll bring them you know, before the, the Father in, in heaven. Uh, we agree, that's referring to the rapture. Uh, but notice, though, Jimmy D. Young makes a false economy. He disconnects the rapture from the second coming. I shall come and receive you unto myself. That's not the second coming. We come with Christ down to the earth. Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31. This is, I think, one of the most fundamental fallacies of the pre-trib view. They disconnect the rapture from the second coming. He, he says that... Jesus, in Matthew 24, verse 31, in, in the second coming, he says that Jesus comes to the earth. That's not the second coming. We come with Christ down to the earth. Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31. Actually, it doesn't say that. Uh, in Matthew 24, 30 to 31, it says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man, uh, man arriving on the clouds of heaven, not on the earth, on the clouds of the heaven, with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. Now, that's very important. Uh, in First Thessalonians uh, 4.15, the classic rapture passage, uh, Paul says, For we tell you this by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until... The coming of the Lord will surely not go ahead of those who have fallen asleep. Very interestingly, the, the, the Greek term behind coming here is parousia. It's the same term that's used in Matthew 24. And yet, in that Paul here, uh, in verse 15, or what follows verse 15, is he explains what's going to be uh, one of God's very first purposes in the second coming, the second parousia. And he explains it's going to be the rapture. So here Paul associates the rapture with the second coming. Not just associates it with, but it's one of God's very first purposes. Which is interesting because the passage I read in Matthew 24 about Jesus coming on the clouds. Uh, what happens immediately when Jesus comes on the clouds? There's a gathering of the elect. Now, let me mention something about the term parousia, the Greek term. This is very important. The term behind coming... So when we talk about the second advent or the second coming, the Greek term there is parousia. And it means an arrival and a continuing presence. Okay, so it's, a, it's the word that the disciples uh, used in the disciples' questions in Matthew 24, th uh, 3, uh, when they asked Jesus, what's the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And it's a, it's a term that's used 24 times in the New Testament, and 17 of those times is always used in the singular, not the plural, or, you know, like two stages or two comings of Christ. It's, not, it's always in the singular. 
basically the second coming, okay, this is very important to understand. It's a comprehensive, complex whole. It's not some simple instantaneous event uh, as the rapture will be. You know, the rapture will be very quick, right, when it happens. Uh, so basically, in short, Christ is coming back as deliverer, i.e. resurrection, rapture, as judge, day of the Lord's wrath, and as king, the millennium. Of course, it's going to be, the millennium is going to be the apex of his parousia because he will rule in his uh, kingly presence. So, Right. I mean, as a former pre-tribulationalist, I was so glad to be able to actually uh, equate things like Thessalonians to, with Matthew 24, su such obvious uh, parallels, you know, gathering yeah. in the clouds and the angels and the trumpets and everything else. It's obviously the same event, but I was simply yeah. not allowed to see that as the same event. And, and this whole idea of splitting up the, the rapture and the second coming, which are two, you know, they are distinct uh, events don't in, in one sense. I mean, the rapture is not the same thing as the, uh, you know, Revelation 19 and, and the destruction of the wicked in that in that uh, in that chapter but mm -hmm. it's 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 as you said the, the the key is this term which the term parousia used in greek literature if i'm not mistaken is to describe a a regal visit of the king which includes yes. the the king's arrival but also the king's stay as he is is there and yeah. also his leaving it's all considered a parousia and so yeah. it was it's just a a definition of the term which if you look at any any dictionary of that word you'll see that it includes even doctrinally speaking it includes things like the rapture, the resurrection, and includes the judgments right. and all these other things. It's just a, a simple understanding yeah. of the Greek. These are the letters to the seven churches. And Jesus gave John the information to give to the churches, and he wrote the church at Philadelphia. Notice what he says here in verse 10. This is the church at Philadelphia. This is talking about not only the churches that were alive in 95 AD, churches that are alive today and characteristics of the church age down through 2,000 years. Here's what he says, verse 10, chapter 3 of Revelation. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also, now notice, keep thee from the hour of temptation. Mm. Hour of temptation is talking about that tribulation period. It's talking about a time of testing. He didn't say, and the Greek and the English grammar are the same. He didn't say, I'll take you out of. He said, I will keep you from that time of testing, that time of tribulation. Okay, Alan, what <clears throat> would you say about that argument? Yeah, uh, well, I'm going to kind of deflate the, the pre-tribulationist argument here and, uh, uh, and, and say that I completely agree with them. I, com I completely agree with pre-tribulationists on this verse. Uh, Revelation 3.10 reads, uh, Because you have kept my admon admonition to endure steadfastly, I will also keep you from the hour of testing or temptation that is about to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. <clears throat> now, I take the position that the hour of testing, the hour of temptation, refers to uh, not the great tribulation, uh, but the day of the Lord's wrath. And I, I'm not my point here is not to explain why um, or give reasons why, because the the point here is that pre-tribulationists also agree that the hour of testing refers to the day of the Lord's wrath. Okay, so when they say, "Well, we're going to be raptured before the day of the Lord's wrath," I say, "Yep, I agree." 
Where, but the question though is, when does the day of the Lord's wrath begin? And Revelation three ten says nothing of the sort. Uh, so it kind of deflates their argument, right? Because they they think they own this verse, and they don't, because uh, myself and many other pre-rathers agree that the day the the hour of testing is the day of the Lord. Now. I don't want to minimize the importance of this exegesis, okay? Um, <clears throat> you know, because there's there's arguments of uh, what kind of protection, what does, you know, act versus apple, you know, the, the difference between those two prepositions. And by the way, during the Hellenistic period, the ter- two terms had overlapping uh, meanings. So those who say that act and apple have two unrelated or uh, distinct meanings are, are simply wrong. Uh, they can, but... Uh, again, during the new uh, in the classical period, they had different meanings, but in the um, New Testament period, Hellenistic period, they 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 overlap. But the point here is this: you're referring uh, just for people that that's yeah. probably referring to the idea of keeping you out or from from right the, At, the, yeah from and all that. And my my response to this is, uh, by the way, I have a a book coming out this this summer on uh, called the Antichrist before the Day of the Lord, and uh, I I note this in the book. And that is that, uh, you know, I'm interested in actually just uh, bypassing a lot of this exegetical debate and really getting to the heart of the issue. And that is uh, Revelation 3.10, you know, pre-tribulationists read this as the promise to the church being raptured, keep you from before the day of the Lord's wrath, i.e. the hour of testing. And somehow that's supposed to prove the pre-tribulational rapture. But Again, the problem is uh, the pre-wrath views uh, or uh, views this as well has the same position on this, so they don't own this conclusion. Uh, pre-wrath affirms that the rapture will happen before the day of the Lord. Okay, First Thessalonians five nine, Paul says that we will the church will not experience wrath, but Revelation three ten again does not address the fundamental question of when does the day of the Lord begin. The verse only gives a, a it's a promise of a particular protection. So, uh, so as far as when when does God's wrath begin, we have to look elsewhere in Scripture. Very good, and um, I think this is one of the issues that um, I have never seen a pre-tribulationalist myself. I'm sure it's been done. Really, really understand that this this semantic argument of calling the 70th week of daniel the 70 year seven year period the tribulation that is such that that is a teaching that they that they don't get from anywhere in scripture in fact it's directly refuted in matthew 24 and all the speaking of the abomination which is of desolation which occurs at the midway point and then instigates the the so-called megastolipsis that that uh, john talks about which what christ said that the tri- the tribulation that the ellipsis that is like nothing that will come before it and all these things happen after it begins at the midway point so in no scenario in no scripture in no way can the pre-tribulationalists argue that the scripture teaches that this seven-year period is the tribulation period and the the other uh um thing I would say here is that this argument of Revelation 3.10, as you mentioned, is not a problem for pre-wrath. It may be a problem for some other views, mm-hmm. but it is not it, it, it is not a problem for the pre-wrath position. Right. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, this is the celebration. 
Now let me just compare a Jewish wedding. You know, I've lived in Jerusalem for 23 years. I've attended Jewish weddings. They have a three-part approach to getting married in the Jewish world. The first is the time of engagement. What happens, the young lady who wants to marry this young man, the bride-to-be and the groom-to-be, come together with their fathers, their respective fathers. The four of them get together. A decision is made by the fathers, not the young couple, by the fathers that they can get married. And then the father of the groom says, you know, your mother and I have decided to let you build an apartment onto the home place. We know that rent is always a problem for young married couples, so you can build the apartment. Uh, you'll have to pay for the materials, but you'll have it rent-free after that as long as you need it. And then the father of the bride-to-be says, Honey, now you need to come on home, and Mama's going to help you get all your things ready for your wedding. You've got to make the planning uh, come together, going to have the big celebration. Your gown is going to have to be made and everything else. And so they separate, and they go their separate ways. They still have a relationship, but they go their separate ways. That's the engagement period. When the young son goes back, the one's going to be the groom, he finishes building that apartment. And by the way, he doesn't make the decision when that apartment is finished. If that would be the case, he'd put up a lean to it and go back and get married. He goes back and his father makes the decision when they're going to be able to get married because the apartment is finished. He tells his son, go get your bride. And he sets out, he calls his best man first, and I've heard this happen in the old city of Jerusalem. Best man goes through the city shouting, behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go over to the bride's house. That's where the families will be meeting. The rabbi will come over. Now they will, at that time, Go through the ceremony. That's the second phase of a Jewish wedding. There will be a physical union, sexual intercourse between the couple in a secluded place after the ceremony is completed. They will then step out and they will say to all those gathered there at the wedding ceremony, let the party begin. And that party lasts for seven days. Seven days. Do you not remember John chapter 2? Jesus and his disciples went to Cana of Galilee where his mother was she was in the third day of that seven-day Jewish wedding celebration. And when he got there, the host had run out of wine. And that's another story for another time as well. But it's a seven-day period of time. But they celebrated for seven days. See the parallels? Jesus said, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a mansion for you. We'll be able to live there rent-free. Well, I didn't say rent-free, but you know what I'm talking about went back to his father's house one day his father's going to say go get your bride he's going to come we're going to be gathered up the marriage ceremony will take place we will be brought together with jesus christ as husband and wife and then the marriage celebration for that seven year period of time while hell is breaking out on earth seven years in the heavens we're having the marriage celebration by the way that means the rapture had to take place before the seven-year tribulation period for all that to be true. Exactly. It's just the scenario. I didn't lay the scenario out. All right, Alan, what would you say to, uh, to Jimmy DeYoung in, in this clip? Well, uh, this is a, a long-winded way of saying I really want these seven days to represent seven years. Um, you know, it's interesting. We're responding to Brandon House and... Um, Jimmy DeYoung, uh, uh, to, to their program, or I, I think the specific program is called the Evidence for the Pre-Tribulational View. But uh, 
my, I mean, I guess my response is, is this the best they got? And I don't, I, honestly, I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful here. I, I, I'm being serious. Basically, distilling that whole argument, De Young is saying, well, since the, since the Jewish feast lasted for seven days, therefore, uh, that means that the rapture will take place before the seven-year period. I mean, that, that's basically his argument. First of all, Scripture does not make the this uh, the the analogy here. Okay, this is De Young is reading that into the uh, the biblical text. And by the way, Scripture explicitly mentions the wedding feast beginning at about the end of the seven year period, not the not the beginning. In in Revelation nineteen seven. Uh, through nine, it says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory because the wedding celebration of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. She was permitted to be uh, to be dressed in bright, clean, fine linen uh, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write the following. Blessed are those who are invited to the banquet at the wedding celebration of the lamb. He also said to me, these are the true words of God. This is placed in the context toward the end of the seven, seventh week of Daniel, or it actually maybe even after, I would argue, after the seventh week of Daniel. This isn't placed at Revelation 4, 1, or before it. So this is problematic for, for the pre-tribulationists. And, and another problematic issue is that, uh, interesting, the Olivet Discourse that pre-tribulationists say do not apply to the church, and yet one of the fullest parables, illustrations in the Olivet Discourse to apply to the Perusia, the gathering of elect in verse 2431, is the parable of the ten virgins. That's very interesting because that's illustrating the Perusia event in Matthew 2430 to 31, the location that pre-tribs say that is not the rapture. So it's amazing. So they'll, they'll take the wedding imagery and they'll create this scenario that Scripture never makes the analogy, right, to, pr- to try to prove the pre-trib rapture. But then they'll actually ignore the two explicit passages that, that use the imagery of the wedding uh, in, in the Bible. I mean, again, it's very uh, inconsistent. And, uh, and, yeah, Revelation 19 and Matthew 25 uh, in my view, argue against their position of placing a rapture at the beginning of the seventh week. If you're going to start using the, the the wedding imagery, we can use it actually to support uh, the pre-wrath position and actually argue against the the pre-trib view. Right, and I would I would say that that um, you know this whole idea of the Jewish wedding thing as a former pre-tribulationist, I mean, it was like doctrine. You had to learn uh, about the Jewish uh, wedding in order, and and but you weren't really allowed to learn about the Jewish wedding from you know Matthew twenty-five or or the places where it's, it's explicitly talking about the Jewish wedding. They also try to use it to to bolster the idea of imminence that the rapture can come at any moment. So they really have to play up the idea as he did there that you know nobody knows when the father is going to allow. Uh, the the uh, the groom to go get his bride, and then when the young son goes back, the one's going to be the groom. He finishes building that apartment, and by the way, he doesn't make the decision when that apartment is finished. The father tells him when to go. All that stuff is very very played up in this whole scenario. Yeah. something that you don't find in scripture, and and you know um, that's completely wrong from what I understand about it. You know, Missler cites the the Universal Jewish Encyclopedia to support. Uh, this and several other points regarding Jewish customs. But his own source says plainly um, 
that the time of the engagement was 12 months. And so the fact is the bride knew the length of time, the time of the betrothal. And I think that the whether it's 12 months or whatever is agreed upon at that moment. It, it, now, what he's saying there is basically true from what I can gather of the Jewish wedding. That is to say that it is announced by somebody going through the streets that it is now uh, it, it's now uh, time for the engagement to happen. But I think the what we do have in Scripture uh, about, as you mentioned, the the parable uh, of the uh, the virgins and the lamp, we can use the what we not only what we know for real about the Jewish wedding, but also what's in Scripture about the Jewish wedding to support the pre-wrath rapture. We don't have to uh, uh, deal with the text or history in a uh, flippant way. Or maybe one you've never heard of, the pre-wrath view. That's not really the rapture occurring in the middle of the tribulation, and it's not the rapture occurring at the end of the tribulation. It's really the idea the rapture occurs about at the five-year mark or somewhere in there. It doesn't have to be taken out at the midway point, mid-trib rapture. It doesn't have to be taken out at the three-quarter mark through the tribulation, the pre-wrath rapture. Okay, Alan, what would you say to those two clips? Yeah, my response to that is, for those who don't know, the, the pre-wrath position on the Second Coming was pioneered by two individuals, uh, Robert Van Campen, he wrote the book The Sign, and Marvin Rosenthal uh, wrote the book The pre Rapture of the Church. Uh, this is around, uh, around 1990. And so the pre-wrath position has been around for almost 25 years now. Now, what I'm uh, a little frustrated about is because it's been around for 25 years, many pre-tribulationist teachers, including uh, Brandon House and Jimmy Young, unfortunately just cannot get the most fundamental understanding of the pre-earth position. And that is, um, it's not the position that says, well, the rapture is going to happen three quarters into the seven-year period, or as House says, around the five-year mark. You don't find this terminology in pre-earth literature, and more importantly, you don't find this teaching in pre-earth literature. Uh, so it's a misrepresentation. Uh, that's not what the pre-earth position believes. Uh, the pre-earth position is that the rapture will happen uh, sometime during the second half of the seven-year period. Or more specifically, pre-earth believes that the uh, at the midpoint of the seven-year period, the Antichrist Great Tribulation will begin, be a persecution against God's people. And we don't know the day of the hour, but those days of persecution will be cut short sometime during the second half of the seven-year period. Uh, and, you know, Christ will come uh, on the clouds. He will, uh, the resurrection will happen, the rapture will happen, and then the, uh, he will uh, execute his subsequent day of the Lord's wrath upon the ungodly for the remaining part of the seven-year period. So, I have to acknowledge that Brandon House did get something right, and that I'm glad he did mention that the pre-wrath position believes makes a very important distinction between the uh, the Antichrist Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord's Wrath. These are two different periods, and they should not be confused with each other. But uh, again, I you know I just this three-fourth language, five-year mark. Uh, this should just be jettisoned. It's not an accurate representation of the pre-wrath position. 
Very good. You know, it's uh, it's frustrating, as you said, because so few people do honestly represent the pre-wrath position when they critique it. Almost everything out there on the Internet is uh, is is telling people that pre-wrath is something that it's just quite simply not. Uh, it's a it's a straw man argument. They say, look at this ridiculous thing that they've concocted and then they they knock it down. But of course, I th- I take it a, a bit as a compliment that the pre wrath position is uh, needs to be unfairly represented in order to be uh, refuted. This idea of the three quarter view is was a very early. Uh, it seems like they're all reading from the same critique that was a very early critique, if I'm not mistaken, about the pre wrath position uh, that has uh, pretty much been the one that has been uh, used, even though it was like the others misrepresenting the position. Right, and that by the way, that just goes to show you that. Uh, you need to read primary literature because, you know, when a lie or a misrepresentation is repeated in secondary sources over and over and over again, well, that's how you get all of these bad misre- misrepresentations. So you got to go back to the original sources or at least the, pr- the, the primary literature and see how, how do pre-wrath, pre-wrath writers define the position themselves, not what a, a biased pre-tribulational teacher will filter. you you got to go back because that's going to – Lend, uh, or in other words, it's not going to give you credibility as a pre-tribulational teacher if you persist in a misrepresentation. So anyway, I, you know, uh, for for those out there who are pre-tribulational, this this whole teaching today, you know, it may sound new to you or even challenging. I hope it is challenging to you. Uh, and if you've grown up in a tradition that assumed the imminency of the Lord's return, as I did. Uh, you know, if this describes you, I just, you know, I just leave you with an encouragement to be a Berean in the faith. You know, Acts 17:11 says these Bereans were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they eagerly received the message, examining the scriptures carefully every day to see if these things were so. So um, that's all I have to say, and I just, I just want to thank uh, Chris for for having me on here and um, discussing these important issues and responding. Interacting, engaging uh, with uh, with the statements of Jimmy DeYoung and Brandon House. Great, and I would just recommend anybody to go to one of two sites. You can see in the show notes uh, Alan Kirshner's uh, site. You can also go to um, the podcast site BibleProphecyTalk.com, where Alan and I uh, often will engage in preacher relational arguments and other things. You'll also get a lot of um, different things there. But I would encourage you also to check Alan's site for material. He's got a book coming out pretty soon, as he mentioned, and there are, are plenty of different ways to understand what the pre-wrath rapture view does in fact teach. There is a uh, about an hour and a half video that's on YouTube called The Rapture Puzzle Solved with Matthew 24 that I did that uh, concerns these issues and is a uh, basically a teaching of the pre-wrath position. So thanks, Alan, for coming on the show, and we will uh, see you next time.